Welcome to the Heal Podcast for all things related to Lyme disease and other chronic illnesses. I'm Mimi McLean, Mama Five, founder of Lyme 360 and a Lyme warrior. Tune in each week to hear from doctors, health practitioners, and experts to hear about their treatments, struggles, and triumphs to help you on your healing journey. I'm here to heal with you. Before we get started with the podcast, I wanted to talk to you about what is in your personal care products and cosmetics. What you put on your skin, which is your largest organ, is just as important as what you consume. Your body immediately absorbs what is on the skin. But did you know that there is limited regulation in the personal care industry? And the last law that was passed was 1938. So the chemicals and ingredients in your products have not been tested for human safety. So for those of you struggling with your health, it is super important to use clean products. Eight years ago, I started using Beauty Counter for my cosmetics and personal care products. They are the leaders in clean, safer products that work. Beauty Counter has done the research and taken the guesswork out of what is safe. Go to lime360.com forward slash beauty counter to learn more. Reach out to me at mimi at lime360.com if you want to learn more or find out what my favorite products are. Hi, welcome back to the Heal Podcast. This is Mimi from Lime 360, and today we're in for a treat. We have Mary Beth Pfeiffer, and she's the author of Lime, the First Epidemic of Climate Change. And she's an award-winning investigative journalist for the past three decades. She's a reporter who has specialized in social justice, environmental, and health issues. She's also the author of Crazy in America, The Hidden Tragedy of Our Criminalized Mentally Ill. Since 2012, Mary Beth has become the leading U.S. investigative journalist on the growth of and controversy surrounding Lyme disease, a hidden menace that she argues has fostered by a warming world while being poorly managed by American medicine. To get my Detox for Lyme checklist, go to Lyme360.com forward slash Detox Checklist. Mary Beth, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate your time and I'm excited to hear about your book and all your research that you've done with Lyme. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Mimi. Okay, great. So your book, it's Lyme, the first epidemic of climate change you've had out, but now the paperback is coming out on Amazon as well. And so I would love to just dive in with that first, because I want to see why you decided to start covering Lyme. You have been an investigative journalist for 30 years and you were covering mental health and in jails and prisons, but you, you switched over to Lyme. So I'd love to figure out why you decided to start focusing on Lyme, which is really an unspoken and really not covered topic. It really is. And I quickly discovered that there was another version of Lyme disease other than the one that I had come to believe. I started in 2012 to cover Lyme disease because it was a big story where I lived. In other words, there were a lot of people with Lyme disease in the Hudson Valley of New York. But I expected in going into this story, granted, some 30 years after moving to the Hudson Valley and being well aware of the presence of Lyme disease, I expected to write a story about rising case counts, about the response of health officials, about people going to the doctor, getting treatment, and going on with their lives. I found a much different version of Lyme disease than I expected. And it led me to believe correctly, I think, that a lot of people have a misconception about Lyme disease, that it is diagnosed by a test, 
that it shows up as a rash and that it's not really a big deal, except I also found in many cases that sort of were considered to be anomalies, if you will, to me and I think to a lot of people out there. People hear horror stories about Lyme disease a lot, about a a neighbor whose child missed months of school or someone who was disabled and couldn't work because of Lyme disease. It was my impression, and I think it's the impression of a lot of people out there, that these aren't really the typical or worst cases in terms of how Lyme disease manifests itself. But this is a huge part of the problem of Lyme disease. So that's what I discovered. And we can talk more about that, but I I found that Lyme disease was something much more serious Mm -hmm. and further that it was really downplayed by medicine as something we can treat and it was no big deal. Do you think there is a reason why this is happening? I mean, there are so many cases, including myself, where we go to the hospital, the emergency room, because we're having an episode or something, you know, either feeling like you're having a heart attack and then they just brush us off and tell us there's nothing wrong with us. It's anxiety. Go see a shrink. You almost feel like you're being gaslighted, right? Like you're like, I'm not going crazy. I do see these symptoms. My hands, my, you know, my arthritis, this is not rheumatoid arthritis. This is, you know, physical symptoms. Well, and you wonder why, like, I feel like kind of like, wait, what's going on? Why is everyone denying it? Is there a cover up? Is there, is there some reason why? Lyme disease is very closely controlled in the United States and by virtue of that worldwide by this one view of it, the view that is put out by the Infectious Diseases Society of America. And that view holds easy to diagnose, easy to treat. But even the IDSA and the CDC acknowledge that 10 to 20% of everyone who's treated for Lyme disease will have lingering symptoms. There's actually one paper out there that shows 15 years later, 5% of people were still suffering symptoms of Lyme disease. Now, you add up all those numbers year after year. We're now saying that 500,000 people get Lyme disease Mm -hmm. a year. That would be 50 to 100,000 people who have lingering symptoms, 5% of that, 50,000, 15 years later. So add all that up year after year after year, and you have a serious problem. Mm -hmm. But the mainstream thought is the test works and treatments by and large work. They do work for a portion of the population, but there's a huge number of people that they don't work for. And when you go to the emergency room, you have a flare-up, and many other people, they are told, we read the guidelines. The guidelines say, you're good. You don't have Lyme disease anymore. Mm -hmm. And even if they test you, and they find out that you are positive for Lyme disease with the test that's now accepted, it might be an old infection. Mm -hmm. The the test cannot distinguish between old and current infection. So again, they'll just write it off as not being Lyme disease. That's the problem. The problem is mainstream thought on Lyme disease, and it is flawed. Yeah. And so how did you get into, I see you have lawsuits against the IDSA, and it is about this topic, right? It's about doctors that are treating 
not the way that they want you to describe if it's long-term antibiotics or other alternative treatments, off-label drugs to be tried to be applied to Lyme, these doctors are getting in trouble. And so how did you get involved with these lawsuits? Well, when I began my research, I, of course, turned to doctors who were treating Lyme disease. And I found out that in New York, and because I live in a highly endemic area for Lyme disease, many of the doctors who specialized in Lyme disease had been investigated by the state licensing board. They had been often harassed for years after year. Eventually, charges would not be brought, and often not much came of these investigations, but it really scared a lot of people, a lot of doctors away from treating Lyme patients. But that's, that's one side of the legal story. There also is, you refer to lawsuits. There was a lawsuit filed in 2017 on behalf of Lyme disease patients who became ill and were ill many years later, many of them greatly debilitated. And it was filed against the Infectious Diseases Society of America, against seven of the kind of key doctors who wrote these guidelines, and against eight insurance companies. And it basically said, all of you conspired to keep us from getting the care that we needed. Well, long and short of that is these eight insurance companies eventually settled the lawsuit. We don't know what they settled for, but they did the math and decided that, you know, we're just going to presumably pay something and not have to deal with this anymore. That's kind of the the good news for Lyme patients. The bad news is that the lawsuit very recently was dismissed. The plaintiffs who filed the lawsuit and their lawyers couldn't really come up with the needed records that they say would not be provided by the IDSA or the doctors who were defendants. And so the, the judge said, you don't have the goods and I'm dismissing this lawsuit. But the lawsuit, to go back to the doctors, practicing doctors who want to treat Lyme disease patients, was also an outgrowth of those doctors' experiences. They, and some 50 were said to have been brought up on charges, were a key reason why the lawsuit was filed, because Lyme disease patients simply can't get the care that they need. There's been research done by LymeDisease.org showing that, that many patients have to drive 50, 100 miles, get on an airplane. Sometimes they come over from Europe to the U.S. in order to get care for Lyme disease because there are so few doctors willing to take the risk to treat Lyme disease and put their license in jeopardy. And it's not covered by insurance, which is crazy, right? So, Well, that was another point of the Lyme disease lawsuit, yes. It's kind of hard not to stop and say, wait, it seems kind of conspiracy theory-ish. Like, why is it not covered? Is it just because they don't want to, like the insurance company don't want to cover the cost to find this? But like now with long haulers coming out, there's very similar. So you can't sit here and accept long haulers exist, but not long haulers of Lyme. Right. I mean, they're very similar symptoms. They're very similar. It seems like that could be a 
a second book for you in the Lyme world, <laughs> like comparing the long haulers of, of COVID and, and the long haulers of Lyme and how they're very similar and parallel to the symptoms and if they're going to be treatments for them and if it's covered by insurance. And Yes, there are huge similarities between the population of persistent Lyme disease folks and people who get COVID-19 and remain sick long afterward. And many of them are similarly finding that doctors don't believe their symptoms or mm-hmm. doctors dismiss them, tell them they're anxious, tell them just to wait, they'll get over it. And I have been writing a lot about COVID-19. And it's really interesting for me to see how my Lyme disease reporting really prepared me to cover COVID-19. There are treatments for COVID-19. Specifically, I have been covering ivermectin. It has been vilified and dismissed Mm -hmm. in the mainstream media. Government has done everything it can to brush aside the potential for this very cheap, generic, off-patent, and safe drug to be used for COVID-19. A similarity to... Lyme disease is that generally it's treated with longer courses when it's a difficult case of antibiotics, which are also cheap, readily available, covered by insurance when you can prove the case. But we see the same thing happening in both spheres. And I think one of the the key parallels may be that we're talking a solution, and I'd be a little guarded about a solution for Lyme disease. It's very, it's very complicated. complicated. Yeah. But at least at the outset, a solution is a is a an off-patent, inexpensive drug for Lyme disease. It's antibiotics. But if you aren't lucky enough to get over Lyme disease, you fall into the category of rheumatoid arthritis, as you mentioned, or fibromyalgia, or anxiety or depression. And often you're treated with other pharmaceuticals. You become a chronic problem, a chronic patient for the pharmaceutical industry. So therein may be part of the problem Mm -hmm. that we don't have a solution to either Lyme disease or COVID because somebody wants to make money off of both of these diseases. And the quick and easy cure that's not the way. Mm-hmm. Could you go out on a limb and maybe say both of these are made in a lab and therefore that's one reason why they don't want to acknowledge it? I am not willing to say that Lyme disease was created in a lab or that COVID was either, at least not definitively. Right. What we do know is that experiments were performed on Borrelia burgdorferi Mm -hmm. and on ticks in a laboratory. That much is really clear, and it's documented in Chris Newby's book. Right. Yeah, we interviewed her with Bitten. For anybody who's listening, if you haven't read that book, it's a great book to also read, because especially in the time that we're living in right now. And she raised some really important questions. Where did Lyme disease come from? I don't know that the problem we have now is directly related 
to that lab work that was done because Lyme disease has been living in the environment for a very long time. And my book discusses some of the environmental reasons why it has exploded. And we can talk about that too. But as far as COVID and the lab in Wuhan, China, I think it's also pretty clear that experiments were performed on coronavirus there. Mm-hmm. Now, it's quite possible that they leaked, the organism leaked out of that lab. I think that's probably as far as I would go. Mm-hmm. We need to do a lot more research and a lot more study on both yeah. origins for those diseases. Yeah. So could we go back to, you were just mentioning your the environmental impacts or like, why do you think even in the past year, the cases of Lyme that even the CDC is willing to admit has, has doubled. It is an epidemic and it's actually becoming more acknowledged as such. And it, it could be because there's a tick explosion in, you know, as far as the environmental and it's, it's, it's growing around the United States. But I also think maybe there's other ways you can contract Lyme besides just a tick that we're not talking about, either if it's gestational, if it's sexual, there's other things going on. So maybe you could talk about why you think it's exploding, either if it's environmental because of the climate change or if there's anything else. Well, you know, we have archival data as to where ticks that cause Lyme disease lived 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. And what we see in Europe and in the United States is ticks are climbing latitudes. They're moving north. And there's a pretty clear correlation that they're moving to places that are now warmer than they once were. For example, Canada is a new frontier for Lyme disease, and it is growing a lot in that country north of the United States. And the reason for that, I think, is pretty clear that it's warmer there. But aside from a warmer world, we've adulterated the world in many ways. We've sliced and diced our forests. We've created suburban housing developments. And these are just wonderful places for ticks to proliferate. Ticks thrive in the presence of mice. That's kind of the key thing, the key reservoir for Borrelia burgdorferi. A, A tick is hatched. It finds its first meal on a mouse, and usually the mouse has Borrelia burgdorferi already living in its blood. So mice, deer, fragmented forests, cut up developments, these are perfect places for Lyme disease to proliferate. I think that's also a good point because people think it's just deer, right? And so people think, oh, well, there's no deer in my town. And I came to found out from somebody this gentleman who came to my house, we were talking about like trying to protect for ticks. And he goes, actually, rabbits have more ticks than actual deer do. So he's like, be careful of the rabbits. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they're also on squirrels or the mice, like you said. So if you have mice in your house or you have rabbits running around your front lawn, you can have ticks. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to have deer. Yeah. Small mammals basically are the place that ticks go to get that first meal. So we have mice, we have chipmunks, we have moles, we have shrews, all of those things really support this ecosystem that Lyme disease needs to survive. Deer do play a role. They just don't infect the ticks for the most part. 90% of the time when a tick bites a mouse, it will pick up Lyme disease. 10% of the time when it bites a deer, it'll pick up Lyme disease. 
But the deer have played a great part in being kind of the last place where the the adult tick goes for that last kind of roll in the hay and and mates, meets its mate, and eventually falls off and lays eggs. Deer also travel around, as do birds. Birds have really been effective in moving Lyme disease around the planet. Oh, birds too. Wow. Yes. um, They are key to the kind of a long distance flight. You might have a, a bird that starts in Virginia picks up a tick, drops it in New York, or picks it up in New York, drops it in Canada. We have found Lyme disease infected ticks on birds as far north as the Arctic Circle and in other places as well. Now, have you studied or investigated how Lyme has been transmitted either sexually or gestationally at all? Yes. I wrote a story for Scientific American a year or two ago on the evidence that Lyme disease can be passed in utero. Mm -hmm. And this is another, you know, controversial aspect of Lyme disease that the Lyme disease advocacy community has had to really fight to Mm -hmm. get accepted in the mainstream. And it has made a lot of headway, but it still is not a universally accepted truth. But if you go back into the scientific literature, you will see many examples and documented scientific papers about babies that were stillborn. And the Lyme disease spirochete was found in organs, was found in the brain, was found in the kidneys, was found in other parts of the baby. There are cases of babies who a year or two or even a couple of months after birth test positive for Lyme disease without ever being exposed to a tick. So I think it's pretty clear that Lyme disease can be passed in utero. And we really need to be looking for this and treating women aggressively if in fact they are bitten by a tick while pregnant. Yeah, they should almost have that as a test as soon as you become pregnant, right? Like to test for it so then you could get treated. I mean, it is, they don't really talk about it, but it's it's the cousin of the syphilis family. So if that's the case, then it should follow along the same guidelines of how syphilis is passed. Yes, Borrelia burgdorferi is a spirochete. We know that syphilis can be chronic, that it can take many, many months of antibiotic treatment to eliminate. We also know that it manifests itself in the long term in many of the same ways that Lyme disease seems to affect people with neurologic problems, with dementia, with chronic pain and such. And why we have chosen to ignore that this spirochete is very different from the spirochete that causes syphilis is really a mystery. But on the kind of positive side, we have some really terrific research going on now in particular coming out of Tulane University, where Monica Embers has been studying these small macaque rhesus monkeys and what happens to them after they are infected with Lyme-toting ticks. And she has found, I could list the things that she's found, but first of all, she's found that she tests them. She finds no Lyme disease, even though she knows that Lyme-infected ticks have fed upon them. She finds that sometimes when they do test positive, she treats them. And four months later, 
they still have Lyme disease in their blood. She can culture it. She can find it in their brains and so forth in their organs. So she basically is proving the case at Tulane University that Lyme disease can persist in the monkey model and presumably in the human model, even after treatment with the standard courses of antibiotics that we all get. Mm -hmm. Is there anything we haven't covered that you would like to touch on? I think what we also see going on now is encouraging in terms of the tick-borne disease working group that has been brought together under a federal law in Washington periodically. We have a group of advocates, research scientists, and so forth getting together to examine this model of Lyme disease that we have in the United States. And they have found significant flaws. They have documented ways in which the test for Lyme disease repeatedly fails Lyme patients. About 50% of the time, when you are in fact infected with Lyme disease, you will test negative. This is not acceptable. We need a better test for Lyme disease. And this working group has documented that problem. Their work continues, and I'm really glad to see it going forward. The problem is that the representation on that working disease group is often met with resistance. You have both sides represented. Mm -hmm. You have the side that believes that Lyme disease is a serious problem and the side that believes no big deal, the tests work, the treatments work. It is not a persistent infection. So there's this ongoing tug of war. They're still meeting. I can only hope that eventually the side that sees a problem will prevail. I think it's made great headway, but I think there's a lot of work to do. Right, especially because the person who runs that group doesn't believe in Lyme, right? So at least the one, a couple of times I've called in and listened that was my takeaway. <laughs> but yes, let's hope. And I do know that with the uh, LIMEX, that was a coordinated effort with a private foundation that joined forces with a government organization to acknowledge it. And they have been increasing the funding that has gone to Lyme each year. Yeah. So let's hope that it, it continues and they realize it. And, you know, I've heard that there's on the horizons going to be a vaccine for Lyme reintroduced again. So, you know, maybe there'll be more headway in the next couple of years as far as recognition from the government. Well, the government has, in fact, greatly increased the amount of money they're spending on Lyme disease. It's still way, way too small. Mm -hmm. We need millions upon millions more. We're still spending orders of magnitude higher on research for HIV then for yeah. Lyme disease. And or Lyme like West disease. Nile gets a lot more. Yes. I do hear there's one congressman and one senator whose children have been affected by Lyme. So I'm hoping that they keep pushing ahead and bringing awareness. So There are many people in Congress who have been touched by this disease. Um, if you talk to Dr. Jemsek, who's based in Washington, D.C., he'll tell you this. He's treated many of them. But on, on your question about a vaccine... I would be very happy to see a Lyme disease vaccine come on the market, but it'll only partially solve this problem because as we know, ticks carry a lot of organisms. They don't mm -hmm. just carry Borrelia burgdorferi, which causes Lyme disease. 
They carry babesiosis. They carry Bartonellosis or Bartonella. They carry a whole host of viruses and organisms that have been documented in studies, one in particular from Columbia University. So we're not going to solve the problem of ticks by a Lyme disease only vaccine. Mm-hmm. We're going to still have to be very vigilant. We're still going to have to check ourselves for ticks because babesiosis is a serious malaria-like, can be chronic disease. There's just so many levels that we have to attack this from. There's one other thing I, I would mention. There's something called nutcatone, which you may have heard about. Mm-mm. It is a substance that comes from nature. It's in grapefruit skins, I believe. It's also from a tree that can be found in Alaska. This is on the CDC website as a potential preventative for ticks, but it has not yet come on the market in a way that people can easily use it. The hope is that, for example, it could be put in a soap. It has a, a pleasant fragrance. It leaves some, a residue or something on your skin that completely repels ticks. That would be a wonderful thing for us to have. The yeah. kids come in at night, you put them in the bathtub, you give them some soap with nutcatone in it, and you don't have to worry. Right. We need things like that to really just prevent ourselves routinely against ticks because right. they're out there. They're a danger. They're, they're a terrible danger, especially to children. Yeah, they are. So the nucatone is, is something that you would just apply either spray. It's not something you would ingest. No, it's, it's a very safe, from nature, topical kind of treatment. You know, we also have permethrin, which is derived from chrysanthemum flowers, or at least a synthetic version of that. And that has been used by the military for many, many years. It's used by workers outside who, you know, cut down trees and do landscaping and so forth. And it's applied to their clothing. It's embedded in the clothing. It doesn't come off when you wash the clothing. And it not only repels, but it kills ticks. And we can all buy permethrin at the hardware store or online and apply it to our clothing. I do this at the beginning of the tick season in New York. And when we go out, we don't have to think about it. If we have that clothing, those socks, those shoes on, and it'll prevent against being bitten by a tick. Oh, that's great. Okay. So for anybody who wants to read a Mary Beth's book, you can go to Amazon. It's Lyme, the first epidemic of climate change. Is there any other place that they could follow you or you have a website too? Yes. Please look at my website, visit it. It's called thefirstepidemic.com after the book title, thefirstepidemic.com. You can find many of my articles archived there, not only on Lyme disease, but on COVID as well, which I think may be very enlightening to many people in terms of, of how this pandemic is being managed and, in my view, very much mismanaged. Mm-hmm. It's true. But thank you so much for your time. This has been so informative. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mimi. Each week, I will bring you different voices from the wellness community so that they can share how they help their clients heal. You will come away with tips and strategies to help you get your life back. Thank you so much for coming on, and I am so happy you are here. 
subscribe now and tune in next week. If you want to learn how I detox and you want to check out my detox for Lyme checklist, go to lime360.com forward slash detox checklist. You can also join our community at Lyme 360 Warriors on Facebook and let's heal together. Thank you.